like to thank Indeed for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You know, I've been a small businessman almost my entire career, and every single hire needs to be just right. That's why I'm now working with Indeed. And you can get started now with a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offer good through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. We got some economic news that came out earlier this morning. I want to start by looking at the retail sales numbers for the month of January, because coming into January, we had had three consecutive drops in retail sales. In fact, the December drop, which was originally reported as a minus 0.7, was revised to a larger drop of 1%. And in fact, excluding vehicles, the decline of 1.4 was increased to a decline of 1.8 and excluding vehicles and gasoline, the drop actually went from down 2.1 to 2.5. So December's numbers were actually worse than we were originally told from the perspective of you know how much stuff Americans bought. Personally, I think we'd be better off if we bought less stuff, but that's the topic for a different podcast. We got the January numbers. The expectation was for a rebound. The consensus was for a 1.1% gain in January numbers. And we blew that away. The actual number, at least until they revise it next month, was an increase of 5.3%. And the numbers got bigger as you start excluding stuff. Take out vehicles and the number goes up to 5.9%. You X out gasoline And you got a 6.1% increase. In fact, the control group came out at up 6.1% as well. These are some big, big numbers with Americans spending a lot of money. In fact, if you look at some of the individual components, electronics and appliances, spending on those items was up 14.7% on the month. Furniture, home furnishings, those are up 12% on the month. In fact, Online spending in general at non-retailers jumped by 11%. So Americans were really spending a lot of money in January. The question is, where'd they get it? Well, the answer is from the U.S. government. Where'd the U.S. government get it? From the Federal Reserve. Where else? After all, the the second round of stimulus checks, those $1,200 checks, got mailed out at the end of December which means Americans had them in their hot little hands where they were then burning holes in their pockets by early January. And so they promptly took that money to the store and spent it. And that was responsible for the big increase in consumer spending, despite the big jump in unemployment that we had in January. And the fact that we actually have more Americans unemployed today than at the depth of the 2008 financial crisis. So with all these Americans unemployed, you would not normally expect them to go on a shopping spree, except that's exactly what they're doing thanks to U.S. government rewarding Americans with all this stimulus money. And in fact, when you compound those stimulus checks with extended unemployment benefits, many of those unemployed Americans have a greater income now not working than they used to have when they were working, which is why they have so much extra cash to spend. And of course, there are a lot of Americans now 
who are not making payments on their student loans because there's a moratorium there. So I'm sure they're not setting that money aside, uh, you know, to make the payments in the future. They're out spending it. A lot of Americans may not be paying their rent. They may not be paying their mortgage because they know there's a moratorium there, right? I mean, nobody has to pay anything because you got COVID as an excuse. So all of this is freeing up a lot of cash for Americans to spend. But of course, the greater problem is, or another problem, where's all this stuff made? Well, we know all these consumer electronics, all these appliances, they ain't made here. They're all being imported. We know all the furniture, which is part of this new housing boom and this remodeling boom and building onto your house. All the furniture is made outside the United States. We don't have any furniture companies really anymore. Uh, All this stuff, these are all imports that Americans are spending money on. And of course, this big jump in retail sales, it's not just... uh, Americans buying more stuff. I mean, they are buying more stuff, clearly. But it's also that they're paying more money for the stuff they're buying because this is not adjusted for prices. So they're just looking at the amount of money Americans are spending, not the raw volume of the goods that they're buying. So part of this is the result of increasing prices. And if you look at the numbers year over year, not just month over month, year over year, you even have a bigger uh, jump. Headline retail sales were up 7.4% on a year-over-year basis. That's the biggest year-over-year gain since September of 2011. And in core, the year-over-year rise in core retail sales was 11.8%. And that is the biggest year-over-year gain in core retail sales in the history of this index. So I'm not really sure when they started tracking it. But this is the biggest year-over-year gain since they did. And we have all these unemployed people. The secret to the supposed success is this money machine that we've now discovered. People don't need jobs. They don't need to work. All we have to do is print money and mail out checks. And we can have this booming economy. Except it's not really a booming economy. It's a booming consumption binge. It's a shopping spree financed with debt. And where are Americans getting all these products or where are all the products coming from that Americans are buying with all this freshly printed money? Well, we know these products are being manufactured in other economies that actually are strong and are able to produce the stuff that America's weak economy is incapable of producing. And I talked about that on a podcast last week with all of the the ships that are, you know, queuing up off the coast of California, waiting to unload their goods all the containers that are being put back on ships empty the minute they land because there's such an enormous demand for tankers in Asia to ship stuff to America. It costs 10 times as much money to ship goods to America as it does the other way around. We are about to post the biggest trade deficits by far in American history. We haven't got the January merchandise trade deficit, but it is going to blow the doors off the building when we get these numbers. I mean, if we blew retail sales numbers away, obviously we're going to blow away whatever's expected for the trade deficit because where did the retailers get all this stuff to sell to these unemployed Americans? Well, they got it from importing it because we don't make it. And as fewer Americans are working, well, clearly those Americans aren't helping to produce stuff. So we have to rely on workers overseas who are going to work and who are making stuff. And that's what's enabling Americans to consume. And while I'm on the topic too of rising prices, 
we did get a report on producer prices for the month of January as well. And the expectation was for an increase of 0.4 versus a gain of 0.3 in December. Instead, producer prices rose by 1.3% on the month. Now, what I read is that is the biggest monthly increase in producer prices in the history of this survey, which I just read only goes back to 2009. I'm surprised. Maybe they they slightly jiggered it a little bit, but that is a huge increase in one month. Year over year, the gain is 1.7%. X Food and Energy, right? They were looking at a 0.2% rise. This is the core, right? It rose by 1.2%. Year over year, we now have a 2% increase in core. And year over year core, excluding food, energy, and trade services, there's a, they're pulling out something else. That was also up 2%. But also, as far as I can tell, the amount by which this number beat expectations, right? They're looking for a gain of 0.2 X food and energy month over month. We got 1.2. Uh, the, the, the size of the beat, I think, is the biggest also in the history of this survey. So people are surprised at the big increase in, in prices. So we have Americans spending all this money. We have prices surging. You have interest rates rising. And the only market that seems to be worried is the precious metals market where gold and silver prices continue to decline, although silver managed to erase the decline and finish the day with about a $0.09 cent per ounce gain. But gold was still down about $17, $18. Uh, was down a little over $20 bucks earlier in the day, maybe $22, $23. In fact, gold started out the day weak even before we got these stronger-than-expected uh, retail sales numbers. But again, it's not a strong economy that's driving the retail sales, even though that's what Wall Street believes. It's not strength when you're just spending money that the Fed prints and running huge trade deficits. It's weakness, but Wall Street doesn't understand the difference. But before we got those numbers, gold and silver were already down. Interest rates were up prior to the numbers coming out. In fact, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury had gotten up to one33 And then once the number came out, bonds actually caught a bid and rallied, which was a bit of a surprise given how much hotter than expected the number came in. But maybe there was some profit taking on the people who had shorted the treasury market into that number. So there was a bit of a rally in the bond market. Those gains were surrendered into the close and the yield on the 10-year ended up notching up a bit. Remember, it closed yesterday just below one3 Today, it closed just above at one spot, 301. The yield on the 30-year, which almost touched uh, 2.1% in the morning, that ended up backing down a bit on the day. So the yield went back down to 2.069%. Again, even though we had hotter than expected retail sales numbers and PPI numbers, uh, the the yield on the 30-year came down a bit. But the gold market never recovered. It was down in the morning and it stayed down despite uh, the Fed minutes, which I'm going to get into in a minute. But also this morning, we had a move up in oil prices. Crude oil almost touched $61 a barrel overnight. And then again this morning, and then it sold off negative 
on a report that the Saudis were going to increase production. But this is such a strong market that it shrugged it off and it made a new high into the close. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast, I'm pretty sure the market has settled up on the day and we're at $61.26. So now we've got a 61 handle on the price of crude. So oil prices are continuing to rise uh, as uh, bond yields are reflecting the increasing inflation that is obviously building up in the system, obvious to everybody except the Fed. Now, of course, maybe it is obvious to the Fed, but they feel they have no choice but to deny what should be obvious because they can't admit the box that they placed us in. You know, my podcast is really just a small business. And when you're talking to small business owners, we get it 100%. And when it comes to hiring, every single hire needs to fit just right. Our team is small. One wrong move could destroy the whole operation. That's why I want to talk to you about Indeed. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with instant match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. That allows you to do the part you need much faster. That's meeting and hiring great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist much faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts. You can pause your account at any time and you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you can see a great list of candidates right away. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. So do you want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. You can get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. And as I said on the last podcast, it's the belief that these stronger than expected numbers, right? All these, the retail sales, the PPI, we're going to get CPI, but all these big price increases that everybody can see. In fact, I read an article recently on how food prices are really going to start going up. Some of these big food companies have seen surging costs and they're about to pass on those costs uh, to the consumers. Energy costs are soaring around. You know, you've got shortages. Look what's happening in Texas. You got rolling blackouts. So prices are really going up. It's obvious that there is an inflation problem. And this is what's been weighing on the gold price. Now, the dollar did rise today on the expectation that the Fed is going to respond to this economic strength, in quotes, and um, the potential for inflation by raising rates. So we did have the dollar index up back up to 90.9, so almost getting back up to 91, but still not a lot of dollar strength given all these renewed 
expectations now for a tighter Fed and for a stronger dollar. But the Fed basically came out and should have thrown cold water all over those expectations when it released the minutes of its last FOMC meeting later in the day. And really, it surprised me that we didn't see any kind of recovery in the gold market or any kind of real sell-off in the dollar in response to these minutes, which were extremely dovish. I mean, it seems that the Fed keeps getting more and more dovish uh, every time they communicate something. I mean, Powell seems to me to be the most dovish of the Fed chairs yet. I mean, he wasn't the most dovish when he first arrived on the job and was actually raising rates, but he is now. I mean, we're all doves now. I mean, that is the problem. The Fed gets progressively more dovish, and I think that's by necessity because as the U.S. economy, thanks to the Fed, gets deeper and deeper into debt, a ever-expanding amount of monetary combination is required to keep this whole thing going. So whatever you know, uh, preconceived notions Powell had when he first took the job, he's now been faced with reality. And the reality is it's going to hit the fan unless you uh, keep printing money. And that's exactly what they're going to do. And that's what the minutes revealed. Again, I've been saying this, in the minutes... They basically said that the economy is going to take a lot longer to recover, that the vaccines are going to take longer to have the effect, that we have an elevated amount of unemployment, and we need to keep the stimulus going longer. There is no point in sight where they're going to raise interest rates. They reiterated that they're not going to do anything about shrinking their balance sheet. And what they said in the minutes is before they even think about shrinking their balance sheet, they will communicate that to the market so that when they start to think about potentially shrinking their balance sheet, they will alert the market of their thinking. So as long as they haven't alerted the markets, there's not going to be any surprises. They're not going to just surprise the markets by doing something that hasn't been long telegraphed in advance. So in other words, they're saying, hey, keep the pedal to the metal. Don't worry about any anything in the road uh, that's going to blindside you. Uh, you got a clear path uh, to gamble, to speculate, to spend, to do whatever you want, because we are not going to do anything to upset this apple cart or rain on your parade. And the minutes even went further to talk about how they're not worried at all about inflation and they don't even care if prices go up. That prices going up, as far as the Fed is concerned, isn't really a sign of inflation. Because what the Fed is saying is they expect prices to go up due to all this pent-up demand being unleashed. The problem is there isn't really a lot of pent-up demand because consumers kept on spending even though they were unemployed because they had a lot of money. I mean, there is pent-up demand for certain things. I mean, maybe travel, taking a cruise, uh, going out into a bar. You know, So there are some sectors of the economy where there's obviously some demand that's been pent up. But during the pandemic, Americans simply shifted their spending. Instead of spending money on those things, they spent it on something else. It's not like all that demand has been held off. I mean, it's, it's just been redirected someplace else. But the Fed is basically saying, look, we know we're going to have this big increase in demand as the economy reopens. And if prices go up, we're not going to care. Because we're going to know that this is just transitory. This is just temporary and it's going to wear off. And then the Fed also said that they understand 
that demand may come back a lot quicker than supply, that a lot of the blockages in the supply chain that were the result of the shutdowns, they're saying that it may take supply longer to come back on stream to meet that demand. And so that could temporarily lead to a bigger increase in prices. And none of this is going to bother the Fed. They don't care. So what they're telling the market is don't even pay attention to these PPI numbers. Don't pay attention to the CPI numbers. We don't care. Don't pay attention to what you're seeing in the oil market or in the lumber market or, you know, in the copper market or in the soybean market. We don't care. All this is temporary noise. It's all going to come out in the wash, right? The Fed is 100% confident that this is a transitory, temporary thing. The question is, how the hell do they know? How do they know that it's not permanent? How do they know that these increases are just the beginning of an even bigger trend? How do they know that future price increases won't be even greater than the ones that they think are transitory? They don't. But you know what? They have no choice but to pretend that's the case because the last thing they want to do is acknowledge that there's an inflation threat because the real last thing they want to do is do anything about the inflation threat. So they can't admit that there's a monster that they know they can't vanquish. So they have to pretend that it's not there. That's the only way to justify their current policy is to pretend there's not an inflation problem to solve. And then they can keep the presses going, keep interest rates at zero. The real question for me is when is the market going to figure this out? When are they gonna stop selling gold and selling silver and realize that rising inflation is not a one-time threat that the Fed is going to stamp out by jacking up interest rates and strengthening the dollar, which is going to be a headwind from gold. They are going to do nothing. The dollar is going to collapse, which is uh, the mother of all tailwinds from gold. And so at some point, it's going to happen. But in the meantime, they are simply creating more buying opportunities for people who have really been slow to pull the trigger on getting their precious metals, getting their mining stocks. So again, the markets are giving people more opportunities than you would have thought uh, to load up on this trade and, and get on this train before it just blows out of the station and never returns. I want to finish up this podcast, though, by talking a little politics with regard to a local law in the state of Colorado that really just kicked in January of this year, and it's Colorado's Equal Pay and Transparency Law. And again, the whole law is to address the non-existent problem of the gender pay gap, where supposedly all these businesses are paying women, I don't know what it is, 79 cents on the dollar to do the exact same work that they're paying men a dollar to do. Now, of course, this is all a bunch of nonsense. There is no gender pay gap. Not when you factor in all of the other variables that are responsible for the so-called gap. If you actually compare apples to apples, if you take a, let's say, an unmarried woman and doing the same job as an unmarried man and with the same work experience, they generally make the same amount of money. In fact, I've seen some studies where the women actually make a little bit more. The problem is when you just look at women and men as a group, there are a lot of other variables that come to play that result in the women making less money because a lot of these women 
prefer a compensation package that trades greater flexibility, less travel, more working from home, and they're willing to accept a lower pay in exchange for these greater amount of flexibility that they need to balance their work life with their home life. And you don't generally see these trade-offs being made among men. I mean, the men are basically fully concentrating on their careers when they're married and their spouses are kind of balancing their career uh, with being a mom. And that is really what's responsible for the so-called gender gap. But of course, the other way you know that this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense is that if women really were doing the exact same work as men and getting paid 79 cents on the dollar, if that was the case, nobody would hire men. Everybody would just hire women. I mean, employers aren't dumb. I mean, if I could replace my male workers with female workers and they're going to do the exact same job and they're going to be just as productive and I can pay them 79 cents on the dollar, why wouldn't I do it? I mean, do you think employers are that sexist that they're willing to spend that much extra money to not hire women or somehow they can hire women and just get them to work for less? I mean, no, this whole thing is ridiculous. If women were working and giving the same productivity, employers would only want to hire women to the point where the the gender gap disappeared because women would be in high demand. Employers would keep trying to hire them because they can pay them less. But as employers were bidding against each other for all these women who were working cheap, pretty soon they wouldn't be working cheap anymore because their salaries would be bid up to the same as men. So in reality, there is no gender pay gap. But the problem is all of these laws meant to narrow a gap that doesn't exist are actually going to create a gap because what they do is they incentivize employers not to hire women in the first place. That is a bigger problem. So they make it harder for women to get a job and that's what's going to happen as a result of this law. And so let me talk a little bit about it. The first part of the law basically is that you can't pay a woman less money than you're paying a man to do a similar job. Now, there's some kind of criteria where you can try to prove that if you're paying the woman less than a man, there may be some other factors that are weighing in that are the reason. But of course, if you get sued, you're on the defensive, right? You're the employer. And now you have to rely on some other statistics, some other data to try to justify why this woman that you're employing is earning less than this man. Right. Well, one way to avoid even having to explain yourself is not to hire the woman in the first place. In fact, here is a perfect situation where a company is going to not hire a woman. Let's say I'm a small businessman and I I've got a guy working for me and he's making fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, whatever the circumstances, however, I hired him. He's making fifty thousand a year. Maybe the labor market is softened now and I need to hire a second person but I think I can get a second person to pretty much do the same job and, and, and pay him 40000 a year or her. But I got one guy that I'm paying 50000 a year, right? Now, I probably can't cut his pay. I mean, I hired him. I, you know, I, I, I paid him 50, even though I can go out and hire somebody else for 40. But let's say I can do that. Well, according to this law, if I want to hire a woman, I can't pay the woman 40 because I'm paying the guy 50. I'd have to hire the woman and pay her 50. But I can hire another guy and pay that guy 40 because he can't bring a 
uh, a sexual discrimination suit against me because he's a man. And so I'm not paying him less because he's a woman. I'm just paying him less because the market has changed and I can get, I can hire labor cheaper now. But if the law says you can't take advantage of a soft labor market by hiring a woman and paying her less than what you're already paying the man, then I can't hire the woman because the government has made it more expensive for me to hire the woman by saying you can't pay the woman less. You can pay the man less, but you can't pay the woman. But of course, the other problem is even if I'm paying the man and the woman the same amount of money, all women in Colorado, thanks to this law, now have an extra cost attached to employing them. And that is the cost that I may one day have to be on the receiving end of a lawsuit that claims that I didn't pay this woman enough money. And there are some serious penalties in addition to having to make up, you know, the difference between what you did pay her and what some judge says you should have paid her based on what you were paying somebody else who they claim was doing similar work but getting paid more, right? Not only do you have to make up the difference, but you might have to make up double the difference, right? There's punishments here for uh, this, uh, uh, you know, unequal pay. So all this is going to do is complicate the ability of women to get jobs. And again, it's more government interference in the market, right? It, it should be up to individuals to decide who they want to hire and what pay packages they want to offer. And it's up to individuals to decide who they want to work for and what pay packages they're willing to accept and let the people negotiate. And everybody seems to think that, oh, it's not fair. The employer is at an advantage over the employee. Not necessarily. A lot of these are small employers. I mean, they don't have some big hiring advantage, uh, you know, and, and they certainly don't have a monopoly and they can't force people to work uh, when other uh, employers would be willing to outbid them if they're trying to somehow uh, underpay them. So this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense. But there is another aspect of this law that is also going to do a lot of damage. And that one has to do with promotions. According to this law, an employer in Colorado, you can't just promote somebody in Colorado unless you first offer that job promotion to everybody else who's working in the state, right? So you can't just promote one person who, you know, you hired and then, you know, they do a really outstanding job or you really like something and you want to reward that employee with a promotion, right? And the promotion doesn't even have to be a pay raise. It can simply be more responsibility, right? Any kind of change in their, you know, their job requirement, even their title, right? Anything that would be considered by somebody to be a promotion, you're not allowed to do it. First, you have to let everybody else know that that promotion is available and you have to give everybody in the organization, I guess that's in the state of Colorado, an opportunity to get that promotion. Now, you don't necessarily have to give that person a promotion. You may be able to promote the person you wanted to promote. And I'm not really sure what the consequences might be or what kind of lawsuit you might face uh, regarding uh, you know, who should be promoted. But I think what this is going to do is it's going to mean, all right, well, if I got to promote somebody, maybe I'll just promote somebody in another state if I'm a multi-state employer, because I don't want to have to deal with interviewing and looking at all the people in the organization. I've got somebody that I want to promote. Uh, you know, let me just promote that person in this other state and not have to deal with this nightmare. But 
Why should this be a law in the first place? If I have a business, what difference does it make to the government who I decide to promote? I mean, let me promote whoever I want. Let me, let me give a raise to whoever I want. It's not the government's business. Uh, if I'm running my own company, I make these decisions because I'm the one that has to deal with the consequences. If I promote the wrong person and they do a bad job and I lose money, that's on me, right? So let the employers make these decisions without the government trying to micromanage them or trying to determine how they have to do it. I mean, apparently they're trying to say that, hey, you know, these promotions are just going to men, right? I'm just, you know, so we have to make sure that women know about their promotions. Look, if you're a small businessman, you want to promote the person who's best qualified for the job that you're promoting them to. And if there's some woman in your organization who you think is better, you're not going to just ignore her because she's a woman. But now, because you have all these penalties uh, that potentially you could be hit with regarding the women that you happen to employ, again, it makes people think twice about employing them. And another aspect of this, this law that went into effect has to do with the pay history of job applicants. So what the law reads is that when you're employing people in the state, right, and you're, you're, you're getting uh, applications or resumes, you're not allowed to ask anybody for their salary history, right? So you can't ask people, you know, what are you making now? Or what did you make in your last job? What did you make in your job before that? It is illegal for a employer to ask for that type of history. It's also illegal for the employer to discriminate against any applicants who don't voluntarily provide the information, right? Because some people could voluntarily just send you in their salary history. Hey, I'm applying for your job. By the way, here's what I made at my last three or four jobs, right? The law doesn't say that an applicant can't provide his salary history. What it does say, though, is the employer can't discriminate against people who don't. And what that is going to mean to me is that employers are basically going to refuse to even look at an applicant who provides their salary history because it's too dangerous. Because let's let's say somebody sends you their salary history and then another applicant doesn't and you end up hiring the applicant who provided a salary history. Well, now the applicant who didn't provide one, who didn't get the job, sues you and says, you only didn't hire me because I didn't give you a salary history. Now, how, how, do, how do you prove that that's not why you didn't do it? I mean, who wants to uh, be on a lawsuit? So what I think is going to happen is employers are going to say, look, we don't want to see your salary history. We're not allowed to see it. And anybody who includes a history of their prior salary with their application is going to be disqualified from the job, meaning employers will refuse to hire anybody who provides any information regarding what they used to earn at prior jobs because it's too dangerous to get that information and then hire that person and not hire somebody who didn't want to provide it. So now here's the situation that employers are going to face in Colorado. So you want to hire people and you get all these resumes, but you have no idea what the people earned in their previous jobs. You have no idea of the history of their earnings. You know, were they getting raises? Did they take higher pay when they left one job and took another job? Did, was it for a raise or did they end up getting less money? I mean, it says a lot when you look at a potential job applicant and you can see the progression 
of what they'd been paid and how much, you know, each employer has paid them. Did they, you know, what were they earning when they left? How much did they start? You know, did they get raises when they got a new job. Did they end up getting higher pay or did they end up having to take a pay cut to get another job? I mean, a lot of this delivers more information to a potential employer trying to evaluate uh, how much value a particular job applicant may be able to bring to his organization. And one way to judge that is to see, well, how much value did you bring to your prior employers? And one way to tell is, well, how much were you getting paid? How much were other people paying you? Maybe that'll give me some indication of, of what I should pay. But the state of Colorado says, no, they don't want to do this because what they're saying is women who are applying for jobs, right, since they earned less than men in their previous jobs, that that is going to bias the employers. And so therefore, they're going to pay the women less than they're going to pay the men if they know what the men and women were working in their prior job. So what they want is for the employers to be completely in the dark and have no idea what any of the applicants made in the past so that they won't be discriminating against women uh, you know, in, with the current job. Well, what I think the most likely result of this new law is where you're basically limiting the amount of information that employers are allowed to take into consideration before they hire somebody, my guess is that the average uh, job offer that Colorado applicants are going to receive in the future for both men and women is going to be lower than it might otherwise have been had employers had more information upon which to base a, a salary offer on. And since the current job applicant can't like come back and say, what do you mean? You're only going to offer me 60,000. I was just earning 80. You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to tell your prospective employer what you're earning now and what you've earned in the past. So I think it's going to reduce the overall bargaining position of the job applicants and they're going to be forced to start at a lower starting pay because their employers, their new employers, are not going to be able to get a full picture to evaluate how much to pay. So they're going to play it safe and they're going to pay less. Now, maybe over time, once you get the foot in the door and you show your new employer how valuable you are, you may be able to ask for a raise. But I think that the starting pay level for both men and women will end up being lower because of this requirement that is being placed on businesses that prevents them from accessing information from job applicants that would allow them to feel comfortable in paying their employees a higher salary. Instead, they're going to play it safe and they're going to try to pay less until they actually can discover for themselves on the job what having a better history of prior salaries may have allowed them to determine before they hired them. Now they're going to have to determine it themselves after they hire them. And so they're going to start lower. And again, this is just how it works, right? All these well-intentioned government laws, the politicians come in and they try to get the votes of women by claiming they're being exploited, claiming they're being underpaid. And they say the solution to this non-existent problem is for the government to help you. And then the government steps in supposedly to help them 
and now takes a problem that didn't exist and now they create one and now women are going to end up earning less money and maybe men too as a result of all these government laws which from a moral perspective too and a legal perspective shouldn't even be allowed a private business should not be operated or micromanaged by the government but we're going to see more and more of this not only on the state level but on the federal level from the Obama administration all sorts of new rules are gonna be coming down on American employers that are gonna continue to reduce the overall efficiency and productivity of American businesses, which is gonna make us more and more reliant on the productivity of foreign businesses that aren't encumbered by these rules and regulations. So more and more people are gonna be unemployed. More and more people are just gonna be receiving government checks and trying to spend them on imported products. And ultimately, this just brings us closer to the ultimate dollar collapse that, as I said earlier in the podcast, everybody needs to prepare for now. (laughs) 